You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. Uh, my name is Eric Bonkowski. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And I have said before, some of you know this already, I usually share it around the holidays, that my family growing up, we celebrated the 12 days of Christmas. So what that meant was on Christmas Day, we got to open one present, and then each subsequent day of the Christmas season, 12 days long, we would get to open one other present. Yeah, it sounds awful. It is awful if you're a kid. It's torturous, really, if you've been waiting and expecting for two months to open these presents, you only get to open one a day. It was not torturous for my dad because my dad... What, most of his gifts were like a can of tennis balls or like a, a quart of motor oil. They were not, they were, they were not exciting gifts in the first place. Um, and he also had a credit card so he could buy whatever he wanted whenever he wanted it. But we, we did the 12 days of Christmas and it all would culminate in kind of the one party that my family would throw at each year, which was a 12th night party on January 6th, sometimes on the 5th. And um, at this party, there was forced Christmas caroling. That's right, my dad would sit at the piano and all these random people from his workplace and from our neighborhood would gather around and my dad would lead everyone in singing Christmas carols. Think what you want about those two traditions, but in my family they were really formative. They're things that we continue to talk about even though we haven't practiced that in probably 25 or 30 years. They were the types of things that we measured time by. And I was thinking about that this week because I think the rituals that we have as families are really important. Do you remember anything similar to that from your family growing up? Or do you now in your life have any of these formative routines or rituals, especially around your time? It may just be that how we organize our time is one of the most significant things about us and about us as Christians. You know, here at City Church, since the beginning of the year, we've been uh, working our way through a sermon series in the book of Exodus. It's been focused on the plagues, and today we'll get to the Passover. It's called The Lord Who Wins. And, you know, going about it the way we have, I recognize has been difficult, because we've read all of Exodus throughout the plagues, All of these ten plagues, we've read this hard judgment that God brings against Egypt. And we've sat in that together. And I know that it's been hard, it's been confusing. Maybe some of you have been angry at at God as he's portrayed in Exodus. Maybe you've been angry at me because I've read these long passages. All of it has made me think a little bit about my background in Young Life. So I grew up going to Young Life camp, and at Young Life camp, there's a progression of talks across a week. And the third day, the third night, is the sin talk. They talk about the reality of sin in each of our hearts and in the world, and God's judgment against that sin. And for 24 hours, the students who are there sit in that reality. And it's not until 24 hours later on day four, 
night four, that there's a talk about the cross and about what Jesus has done. And I think in some ways we've, we've done the same thing the last couple of weeks. Last week Harrison preached on the, the, the death of the firstborn, the tenth plague that was announced against the sin of Egypt. And you've had to sit in that. And you've talked about it together in your city groups and you've wondered, what's up with this? Why couldn't we just race through and talk about the Passover and talk about God's mercy and talk about God's love? Well, I think in the same way that Young Life understands the importance of letting people sit in their sin, there's an importance for us to sit in it too. Because that's how we realize how big a problem sin is. How grave the consequences are. How holy God is. And how amazing His love is. And we're going to see that today as we read through um, the Passover and how God provides for the people of Israel. We're going to do this by reading, yes, another long section from Exodus, this time from chapter 12. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open uh, to Exodus 12 and follow along as I read verses 1 through 28. It's also printed in the worship guide, and you can read it there as well. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you, shall not let, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly and on the seventh day a holy assembly no work shall be done on those days but what everyone needs to eat that alone may be prepared by you and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for on this very day i brought your hosts out of the land 
of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron so they did. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that these words that you've given us through your servant Moses would have the same impact on us as they had on the people of Israel, that they would lead us to worship, that we would understand more about our sin, more about your holiness, but then we would behold the Lamb of God in Christ Jesus, your Son, and see that he was sacrificed for us, that we might live and breathe and work to your praise and glory. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So we've been working our way through this cycle of ten plagues against Israel, and I want to remind you of what these plagues are. They are strikes of God's judgment. They are acts of decreation, the undoing of creation. And third, if we have eyes to see, they are signs of God's mercy to us. The tenth plague is climactic. It is uh, an intensification of all that has gone before. But it has some differences from the previous nine. And one of those differences is largely what this whole chapter, chapter 12, is all about. There's a delay between when God announces it and when he carries it out. It doesn't happen right away. Why is that? God, we saw at the end of chapter 11, uh, uh, tells us that this strike against the firstborn of Egypt is going to happen. But then, he proceeds to give Moses and Aaron these detailed instructions of changing the calendar for Israel and instituting a memorial feast. Seems strange, doesn't it, that God's uh, instruction to Israel here would have to do with the way they keep calendar. 
He gives them a new first month. And in that new first month, he gives them this ritual of the Passover. And it was a little repetitive as I read chapter 12, wasn't it? Because we're told it and then it's reported to Israel. It's so important that we're told this whole thing twice. He's reorganizing the time of Israel and he's calling them to remember what he's about to do. Even before he's done it, he says, I want you to have a plan in place to remember this. It's underlining, it's highlighting it. Because this new month and this new meal will help Israel remember some fundamental things about who God is and who they are. Namely, this new month and this Passover meal will remind them that they are a rescued people and a pilgrim people. A rescued people and a pilgrim people. First, they're a rescued people, and this is uh, evidenced by this lamb, the Passover lamb, that's talked about with a lot of detail, isn't it? Well, they're rescued by a lamb, but as verse 3 says to us, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Every man as a representative of his household. Every household is to take a lamb because this lamb will be the means of their rescue. But it's not just the lamb, is it? It's specifically the blood of the lamb. It's the blood that will become the sign of their rescue. Because after the lamb is killed, they take blood and they dip hyssop into that blood. And hyssop was a, a plant, kind of like mint or oregano in the ancient Near East, and had a bunch of little small leaves, and they would dip uh, the hyssop into that, and then they would sprinkle it over the doorway of their house. Because it is through the blood of this sacrificial lamb that they will be rescued. And what are they rescued from? Well, they're rescued from what we talked about last time, the judgment against sin. And we're told a couple of times throughout this passage of what God is going to do. He's going to come to the land of Egypt. He's going to pass through the land of Egypt in order to strike judgment against the firstborn. But those who are marked, those houses that are marked with the blood of the Lamb, He will pass over. His judgment will not strike them. The judgment against sin will pass over. And so in these two phrases that, again, Moses highlights a couple of times for us, we see God as a God who strikes judgment against sin and a God who spares those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb. They're a rescued people. And this isn't two gods who are coming down. One God of the Old Testament, one God of the New Testament. This is one and the same God who both brings judgment and mercy. Who comes inspiring holy fear and inspiring holy love. And we, of course, even as I describe the rescue of these people, if you've been around the church, you know that these find their fulfillment for us in Jesus Christ. In his being struck on the cross for our sin, we are spared. The very same God who passed through the land passes over those who are washed in the blood. 
So they are a rescued people, and that's what this new month and this new meal will signify, but it's more than that. They are also a pilgrim people, and they're told that, and they will be reminded of that. How do we see that? Where do we learn that? Well, we learn it in both how they are to eat and what they are to eat. How they are to eat. Look again at verse 11. Here's what it says in verse 11. In this manner you shall eat the meal with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. How are they to eat? They are to eat in haste. They're to eat with their bags packed, with that nervous anticipation that a trip is about to start. They're they're supposed to eat it in their traveling clothes. Guys, don't get me started on what people wear to the airport these days. I mean, have you flown recently? What are people wearing? It's like some combination of either sleepwear or lingerie. Maybe both. I don't know. Are these people going to a slumber party or are they going on vacation? But for Israel and the people of God, as they eat this meal, they were to wear their traveling clothes. They were traveling to the promised land. They were leaving Egypt. They were on their way out. They had their shoes tied. They had their coats on because they knew God was coming in judgment and that was their freedom. So how they eat tells us that they were a pilgrim people. That after uh, generations in Egypt, finally they were going to be free. That they were headed to the promised land. That they were headed to a land flowing with milk and honey. That they were headed to a land of hope. And this meal would remind them of where they were going. But it's not just how they were to eat, it's also what they were to eat. So here in Exodus 12, we're like getting the gist of Passover and there's some excitement like, okay, God is providing a way. We're going to avoid the judgment on sin through the blood of the lamb. And then we get to verse 14 and for, it's like seven verses. It's a whole long paragraph on unleavened bread. It's like, what is going on here? Now, as bread guy, clearly it piqued my interest. I wondered, what is all of this focus on the unleavened bread all about? Why seven verses? Well, again, it speaks to the haste of the rescue. It speaks of their needing to be ready to leave at a moment's notice. You see, they didn't have time for the bread to rise. That's what the leaven is. It's the the rising agent in dough. They they, they didn't have time for that. They just needed to make their bread and uh, hit the road, throw it in their sack. But it's more than that, I think. It's not just the haste. There's another piece here. And, and to, to get this point, you have to understand something about yeast or leaven. You see, leaven, like uh, wine grapes, like coffee, has its own terroir. Do you know what that is? That's basically a distinctive flavor profile based on the place that it comes from. So grapes in France taste different than grapes in California, and yeast in France tastes different than yeast in California as well. What does all of this mean? Well, what it means, and why God said don't eat leavened bread for a whole week, is that he didn't want the flavor of Egypt to go with the Israelites. 
He wanted to purge all of the yeast of Egypt out of Israel so that the people of God would be remade in the promised land through the Exodus. You see, not only were the Israelites on their way to the promised land, they were also on their way to holiness. And that's what the unleavened bread is pointing to. For, and that's why they would remember this year over year when they celebrated the Passover alongside the, the festival of, uh, or the feast of the unleavened bread. It would be a reminder that in delivering them from Egypt, God was also delivering Egypt out of them. There would be no more yeast. This is made clear to us, fortunately, by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. And he says this, he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You see, the whole thing with unleavened bread had to do with cleansing. Cleansing not their palate, but their hearts and their lives. Because as God took them out of Egypt, he wanted to also make sure that Egypt was taken out of them. The point at the end of the day is not unleavened bread. It's unleavened lives. So that the Israelites would be distinct, so that they would show to themselves and to the world that they were a rescue and a pilgrim people. So I think the point here, probably by now, to most of you is, is relatively obvious. That just like Israel, we too are a rescued and a pilgrim people because of a greater Passover, because of a greater Passover lamb, because of Jesus, as I already talked about. That verse in 1 Corinthians 5, here's how it ends. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. There it is, the clear connection where the New Testament helps us understand what the Passover is all about. It always was looking forward to Christ. It's not as though the, the Passover happened in Egypt and then God was like, well, uh, when I bring Jesus, I ought to draw some connections here. No, God had from the very beginning, from the foundation of the world, he had Jesus in mind. He had the Passover lamb in mind. And Exodus is just a faint echo of what he was always going to do for us in Christ. He is the true lamb. He is the lamb without blemish. All these rules and procedures about taking the right type of lamb for your household. Why? Well, because Christ was the perfect son of God. The blood of a goat or the blood of a lamb can be a symbol of our rescue, but the blood of Christ is the essence of our, of our rescue. And what happened in Jesus' life, in his ministry? What was that all about? Well, it was about God seeing a broken and disobedient world and saying, I'm going to pass through that place. Through the incarnate Christ, I'll pass through that place ready to strike judgment against sin. But, wonder of wonders, mystery of mysteries, 
that judgment on sin, that strike of judgment on sin would fall on Christ. On the firstborn of heaven, not on the firstborn of Egypt. And all those who are sprinkled with the blood of Christ will be saved. You know, here's one more thing that I want you to notice about the the blood in this passage. The blood on the doorways, who is it there for? Is it there for the Egyptians? No, not really. Is it there for the Israelites? No, it's not even there for them. The blood on the doorways of the Israelites is for God to see. Because the effect of the blood of the Lamb is that it satisfies the wrath of God so that when He looks at that blood, He says, it is finished. They are saved. They are rescued. The Lamb's blood, maybe it impresses you with God's love, but the more important work that that blood is doing is it's appeasing the wrath and judgment of God so that we can walk to the promised land. And here's the thing, friends. Just as God, in Exodus, gave some instructions to the people of Israel in light of the Passover, so he also has given instructions to us of how we are to live so that we remember that we are a rescued and a pilgrim people. Just as he instituted the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he has instituted for his church today certain habits and rhythms and routines that will remind us of who we are, that we belong to him. So let me ask you this. Do the doorposts of your life proclaim the blood of the Lamb? Is the leaven of Egypt, the leaven of every other rival kingdom, gone from your life? And what are the habits and rhythms, individually and collectively, that will remind you that you are a rescued and a pilgrim people? There are just two specific things that I want to mention along these lines. I think they're really important for us. The first is that we would keep sacred time. Keep sacred time. What I I mean by this is at the Passover, God reoriented the calendar of Israel so that they would remember who they are. We need the same thing. We've talked a lot about rival kingdoms in this series. We've talked about money. We've talked about technology. We've talked about the things that would take our hearts away from God. And I think foremost among them is our schedules. Have you ever thought about how hard it is to meet up with a single friend to coordinate schedules? And then multiply that across a church full of people. How hard would that be unless we decided together that we must keep sacred time to remind us of who we are, who we belong to, and where we're headed? We've got to keep sacred time. There's a quote from a woman named Elizabeth Oldfield at the top of the worship guide today. I think it's, I think it's brilliant what she says, uh, really in her whole article, but she says this, that how we structure our time collectively and individually is a key factor in our discipleship. 
It's a key factor in our discipleship. You know, I'm old enough to remember when um, we, we talked about must-see TV. It was uh, NBC, Thursday nights, like everyone would gather around and watch TV because we didn't have DVRs, it wasn't streaming, like that was your one shot to watch it. Now everything's on demand. The, the one exception to this was a couple of weeks ago, the Super Bowl. Like most people watch the Super Bowl live, but everything else, it's on demand. I watch it on my time. That's where our culture has headed, that we do everything individually. Well, I can't make it to church this week, but I'll just listen to the podcast. You're missing out on something when you're not keeping sacred time with the people of God. God instituted this for Israel. He's instituted with us because he knows that our being together in the same place, singing the same songs, reading the same scripture, hugging each other is how we remember that we're a rescued people and a pilgrim people because of the Lamb of God. It's what we've got to do. So friends, this is preaching to the choir, right? But show up at church and show up at your city group, especially on those nights that you don't want to go. And come and join us in Lent for a Wednesday afternoon, a noontime service, right? It's how we keep sacred time together because in the middle of the week, I've forgotten that I'm a rescued person. I've forgotten that I'm a pilgrim person and I need to be reminded by my friends. So come and worship. And keep sacred time with others. Push back against all the rival kingdoms that would say your time is your time. And you've got to be more efficient with it and get more stuff done. There's a reason that we come to the Lord's table every Sunday here, right? Because as we keep sacred time together, what could be more of a picture of how we're rescued by the blood of the Lamb than the supper, the perfect lamb killed for us. The, the, the last thing I'll say, the, the last application is keep sacred time. It's cultivate attention as opposed to distraction. And this is a similar point. You can tell where my head's been at recently, right? But cultivate attention. Because more and more we live in an age that is predicated on distracting you. Distracting you from yourself, from your sin, and from God and his love. Have you ever felt like my sermons are too long? Have you ever gotten an article, someone texts you an article, and you're like, TLDR, right? Why is that? Because we have been habituated to an age of distraction where we can't pay attention to the Word of God for 30 minutes. We can't read an article that, for, that will take our focus for five minutes. Why? Because we like the scroll. We like our, uh, our news and our entertainment and our information in TikTok length. Friends, we are captive to a rival kingdom. And by cultivating our attention to ourselves and to God, we can remember that we are a rescued and a pilgrim people. It's really hard for me to pray for any length of time right now. I used to be able to pray for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, no problem. But now I get antsy and I want to pull out my phone. I might be missing something. I think of something. I want to look it up right away. 
I said this on our podcast earlier in the week. I said we need to cultivate desolate places in our lives where it's just us and God. Where we're free from the noise. We're free from the distraction. Because all these voices, all of this distraction, it is telling us things about us that aren't true. And we need to remember that we are a rescued people and a pilgrim people. And we'll do that as we meditate in the presence of God. Individually, and with others. Friends, this is the leaven of Egypt. I'm convinced more and more, this is the leaven of Egypt that must be purged from our lives. What does it look like? Here's a really practical example for you. Don't allow phones at your meals. I've been talking a lot about cultivating attention to God, but the other side of it is attention to other people. It's shameful how often I eat a meal with another person and I'm more interested in my phone than I am in them. What does that say about my theology? And what does it say about yours? So maybe try that this week or the rest of Lent. No phones at the table. Look another image bearer in the eye. Have a conversation. And cultivate attention to the image of God, to the God of the universe, to the Passover lamb who was slain for you it might just help you remember that you are a rescued people and a pilgrim people. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you so much for your favor to us in Christ, your Son. And as hard as it is to think about our sin and your holy judgment against sin, it is more marvelous still to contemplate your grace and your love that we see through Christ, our Passover. Would you help us by the power of your Spirit now to put into our lives, both individually and collectively, new ways of marking time. New meals. New habits that remind us who we are and whose we are. And Father, we pray that as we do that, we would stand out in a world gone mad. And that we could offer a picture of the true and abundant life that you give to us in Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen.